Welcome to The Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. On this special episode, Cindy is joined by three leaders in the industry to discuss the biggest trends in data and analytics over the last year and what they see coming into 2021. You'll hear from Donald Farmer, a principal at Treehive Strategy, Wayne Eckerson, the founder and principal consultant at Eckerson Group, and Tom Davenport, a distinguished professor of information technology and management at Babson College. They discuss everything from how to remain relevant in the rapidly evolving data and analytics industry, what technologies will have the biggest impact on our lives, and what the future of the workplace will look like, and what those changes mean for your business. Enjoy the lightning rounds on Super Bowl predictions, snow, and best books to read. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for you to use search and AI to analyze your company's data lightning fast. Business people at companies like Walmart, Hulu, and Medtronic use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can too. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Joining Cindy first is Donald Farmer. Donald is a principal at Treehive Strategy and is globally recognized as a visionary product leader. He has built and executed BI and AI strategy for industry giants Microsoft and Click, as well as for numerous startups and mid-stage companies. Donald has a long track record of success, and today at Treehive, he is putting that knowledge to work, helping companies execute BI and AI strategies that help them unlock innovation and give them a competitive advantage in the marketplace. Now here's Cindy's conversation with Donald Farmer. I am joined with Donald Farmer, a legend <laughs> in the data and analytics and BI industry. Donald, welcome. Well, thank you very much. What a welcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. People call me veteran and I'm like, uh, okay, that sounds a little old, but we've both <laughs> been here a long time, right? Yes, let's not say veteran, but uh, established. Yeah. <laughs> established. There you go. And Donald, you have quite an illustrious background in our space, but also in what you do with your your free time and before you join this space. So, so tell us about the whiskey connection earlier. Well, that's and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, actually, yeah, it's kind of ironic. I mean, obviously, I'm Scottish, and um, actually, the first data warehouses I built were for the Scottish whiskey industry many years back, which was a lot of fun. And now my son actually manages a distillery in Scotland. He's the manager yeah. of a, a community-owned distillery called Glen Weavis. So very proud of him doing that. Good. So that has to become a most popular customer gift. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, he, when he worked for a distillery in Washington State, then that, that was the most popular customer gift. And now it's got to be Scotch whiskey, which is even better, of course. Yeah. Okay. You're not biased in the least. Um, <laughs> no Irish whiskey or Jack Daniels? I, some, you know, if it's all they have. <laughs> As a last resort. And tell us what data you would use. Is it supply demand? Uh, how would you use data that? Well, when we were building data warehouses for the whiskey industry, it was actually very much about kind of bottling efficiency and things like that. You know, the industry is, is very interesting because distilleries run on very, very small numbers of people. Five or six people can run a distillery, but the output is huge and incredibly valuable. And so there's this large kind of disconnect between the amount of work that goes in and the value that comes out. So tracking that supply chain 
And the value chain, as value is added all the way through the process, is actually extremely important because a small percentage difference can result in a very, very large output uh, difference. Yeah, so interesting. So given that the theme of this podcast is predictions or the art of the possible, are you predicting our whiskey consumption will go up in 2021? Or I'm pretty sure it went up in 2020. Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, let's see what happens in 21. But um, but certainly 2020 has been a record year for drinking at home. <laughs> yeah, drinking at home. So Donald, the, the other thing that I think is interesting is you have worked in in this space in different capacities, going back to even the first generation of SQL Server integration services at Microsoft, so mm. on the data integration, um, later at, at Click as the head of design and innovation, and most recently now advising customers and investors. So as you think about the range of experiences you've had, what is your boldest prediction for 2021? Well, um, remember what William Gibson said, that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. So I, I think that's actually very wise. So my prediction for 2021 will be that technologies that are already here already working and already well established will come to the fore. It's not going to be some great new breakthrough. It's going to be something which is already here and works. And I think there's a couple of them that are worth looking at. I think natural language is finally, finally, finally at at the brink of having a real breakthrough in terms of usability and functionality and usefulness. Okay. (laughs) And working for ThoughtSpot now, I didn't pay him to say that, but natural language has different aspects of it. Well, it um, does, yeah. yeah. I mean, it has both natural language as a, as a source of the query, as, as a source of the input, and natural language as a form of output. Mm-hmm. And and so that's pretty interesting. I mean, if you go back to, you know, natural language query, Microsoft had a tool called English Query back in 1997, you know, yes. um, which was a fascinating product, but it, it never really got anywhere. And part of the reason was that it, it people forgot how much work had to be put into it. People had a kind of myth that you could sit down and ask a question and it would answer it. There was a lot of work went into creating the model that natural language could then interpret. What we have nowadays are a corpus of text that's been collected by companies like Google and all the rest of them, um, vast amounts of text which we can train over without needing specific training. So companies like ThoughtSpot and companies like Microsoft and others who are doing natural language actually have access to more intelligence about natural language than they ever did before. So I think that's super interesting on the input side. So you were thinking uh, 2021 will be the year of natural language. I think so, yeah. And, and on the output side as well, using natural language as a way of generating narratives, I think is super interesting. Well, let's come back to, to that. So it's it's two parts. And you said it, it just is not been evenly distributed. So right. two things that I have to push back on here. <laughs> One is I do differentiate between true natural language and search mm-hmm. and search is on a continuum of it could be keywords it could be fragments of words true natural language if you think of even with our phones and what we might say to our phone largely is not very effective so if i if i try and text use voice to text to my family, that I'm going to be late home. Mm. Who knows what message they actually get <laughs> <Yes>. back? <laughs> Don't press It send. might be leave me alone. Yeah. 
Well, so I'm going to push back on that. Yes and no. Um, what I'm always surprised by is the fluency with which some people use natural language interfaces and the the problems that other people have. And I think part of the, the, the reason is there is that natural language always works two ways. Natural language between human beings works two ways. We both speak to people, but we also get clues from them about what they can understand. So if you're speaking to somebody who's English is not their, their first language, or if you learn a foreign language and you go to a foreign country, um, people actually accommodate you by giving you clues about whether they understand or not, by giving you clues about how you can be clearer. And the truth is, with natural language systems like Siri, and uh, let's take, a, I think, a very good example, some people learn really easily um, how to do that, and others um, don't um, accommodate themselves in the same way to the system, partly because there may be overtrained or they're trying to be over accommodating. I'm amazed, for example, if you look at kids, you know, four or five year old kids, how fluent they can be with Siri or Alexa um, while their parents are struggling with it. But it's partly because they're at a language learning stage of their life and they're accommodating to the system and the system accommodates them. Interesting. So the other aspect of what you're describing as the technology is already here Mm. is perfecting the technology really with consumerization or ease of use. And our head of of growth and embedded, Ken Rudin, I'm mm. sure you remember him back Absolutely. to the Lucid Era days and Facebook and, and Google Analytics. So he's worked both as a tech company and as a director of analytics programs. But he likes to say growth is a game of inches and it's truly perfecting the input. What do you think of that? I think that's true, um, but but I think the other important side of that is also the entrainment of the user. It's not just a perfection of the technology, maybe the perfection of the user, but but I really do see these two systems growing together. There's the human system and the technology system, and you can see that in most of our technologies, we adapt to them. The, yeah. the classic example is the QWERTY keyboard that we've all learned to to use, even though it's no, I uh, have famously inefficient. Well, <laughs> I'm sure you've gotten my messages. I'm well, that's probably it. true, actually. <laughs> But we've gotten better. We have gotten better. Yeah. We accommodate to it. So it takes both. It takes the technology to perfect itself, but also the human um, element has, has got to kind of reach out towards technology. Yeah. And we adjust our way of working in order to suit the technology. Right, right. Okay. Thank you. So then let's go to part two. You were mm-hmm. um, the emphasis on the output. So this then would be natural language generation. And here, again, I would say ThoughtSpot, we have it natively, but then Mm -hmm. there also are some pure play vendors like Narrative Science, Automated Insights, and Aria, for example. And yet they have yet to really take off. I think they look cool and they sound promising. So why Mm. are you thinking this will be a big year for the output as well? I think so. And and um, so kind of full disclosure, I'm an advisor to narrative science. That's okay. Disclose. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very, I'm very keen on this. Now, here's the interesting thing. There's probably a lot more of this going on than we, than we realize. The truth is, every time you read a stock report on certain websites, it's probably generated by a natural language generation product. Uh, increasingly, there are forms of press releases and journalism and updates which are generated by natural language. 
And interestingly, the, um, they're increasingly being read by natural language um, interpretation systems as well. So you have artificial intelligence generating output. Um, for example, um, you know, shareholders reports often generated by natural language and then interpreted by natural language interpreters on the other side in order to, to, to run investments, which it, I, I will admit that's a scary thought. But I think there is probably a lot more of this than we think. But if we think of natural language in the business intelligence context, being able to help people interpret, I think it is on the verge of a breakthrough for a couple of reasons. First of all, the functionality, but also I think we've actually reached the limits of visualization. Visualization, as practiced by Tableau and Click and others, was a great technology, but you still need to be more literate than, than you need to be visually literate in order to, in, to interpret visualizations. And there's a lot of information which is hidden inside of visualization, which is difficult to get to, um, which can be explored in natural language. So the difference between medians and means, um, the significance of a long tail distribution. Unless you know how to interpret that, it's really difficult for a non-expert to get that out of a visualization. But it can be explained to you in natural language pretty easily. So I agree it can be explained in natural language, but from what I have seen on the market to date, it's too much um, almost a templatized interpretation and generation of text. It's not mm. as robust as what a human can actually do. That's absolutely true. And this comes down to this... Um, this two-way nature of, of interpretation, that um, you need to actually be able to communicate with another person. You need to be able to get clues from them about whether they're understanding your interpretation or not, and then tweak it, which we do in the middle of a sentence. Uh, this is why we err and um all the time in the middle of a sentence. We're actually watching, listening to our, our conversant. And um, we're adjusting ourselves. We're in, we're in training and adjusting to them. Um, and natural language generation doesn't quite do that yet, but it is getting better. And I think that some of the approaches that I've seen, and not just from narrative science, but uh, some of the other companies you've mentioned have been pretty good. And I think um, we'll see that develop more. I think 2021 is actually going to be an important year for this. Mm, good. Thank you. So, Donald, in another area that you often uh, speak about and write about is upskilling and specifically around data storytelling. Mm. And let me start with what are your predictions around that? Um, I think we may start to get a little tired of the term. Oh, interesting. By the end of 2021, uh, simply because these, these terms go through cycles, as we all know, you know, they, they, there's pretty well understood cycles of these. But the truth is, I think data storytelling will start to become encapsulated more and more into a set of features, in which case it becomes more seen as a feature set rather than as a human capability. And then by the end of that, it becomes hype. Yeah. So uh, feature set and hype. Uh, one of my favorite analytics leaders told me he, he thought it was all it was all a bunch of baloney, and that it's actually dangerous. And I'm going to pull a very old quote from you that I I still think well. is valid. Don't panic here. <laughs> but data driven decisions are largely influenced by emotional, personal and political factors. So you wrote that a few years ago. Do you think mm. it still holds? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that, you know, data is, we talk about decision support. You know, that was the original term when I was starting in this business. We called it decision support. And we think that data supports us in making decisions. We actually use data more as kind of decision defense. 
We use it as a way of um, defending decisions that we've already emotionally made. I've rarely met someone or seen a situation where somebody confronted with the data has changed their mind significantly about a decision and made another one. I mean, it does happen, but, but most of our decisions are actually driven by a whole lot of other factors. Um, every time you see a conversation around a dashboard, the discussion of what's actually on the dashboard in a meeting, for example, is relatively brief. The discussion about all the other factors that are not on the dashboard, macroeconomic situations, personal factors, that's a much longer and more involved conversation. And none of that is captured in data. Wow, interesting. It can be, or, or, or some of the macroeconomic factors can be. But your point about defending the decision is is interesting or not changing your mind based on new data. And so I just think then, well, do we continue to hone the data storytelling skills to compel people, to incentivize people to actually change their thinking based on new data? It's the storyteller and the, and, and the, the emotional impact of the story that matters. There's a great video you can go and see. You can search for it on YouTube. If you look for shortest TED Talk, I think it comes up. And it's Hans Rosling. And you know Hans Rosling from Gapminder, the, the late Hans Rosling. W wonderful expert in the world of data. And he's sitting in a parking lot with pebbles. And he draws little histograms with pebbles in the parking lot to show the trends in poverty and human wealth over time and, and healthcare. And he's just doing it by piling up pebbles in the, par in the parking lot, talking to someone. There's no technology involved, but there's three very important things. First of all, the story is very, very compelling. It's, it's, it's morally important, ethically important. It's not about the sales of refrigerators in Wisconsin. It's about our health and, as, a, as a species and, and, and the future of human life. Secondly, Rosling's a great storyteller. He's able to tell any story in a very, very compelling way. And the third thing is he only ever uses the, um, the technology to back up what he's saying. And the technology in his case is piling up some pebbles. So it's not even much technology, but it's there to support what he's saying, not to drive what he's saying. And almost all three of these things are not present in 90% of the data storytelling we do in business. The story isn't particularly compelling or morally important. We're not particularly good storytellers. And we use the technology to drive what we're doing rather than just to support our interpretation and to support the story that we're telling. So morally important. Does that get down to we're not bringing enough of the liberal arts background to technology and to business communications? Or is it, are we not pointing technology at the right problems? Well, we certainly could point technology at more problems. And I think we don't bring enough of the kind of wider aspects of education and, and culture into technology. Technology has been this, um, especially information technology, has been this, this surprisingly narrow furrow that people have been plowing for the last sort of 20, 30 years. And, and they've completely ignored the wonderful work that's been done in areas like linguistics and philosophy and psychology and sociology that can bring a lot of, and even economics and can bring a lot of learning and, and very basic things in technology. When is the last time anybody in the business intelligence world did an A-B test of deploying, you know, multiple versions of a, a dashboard or a, an interface to different users in the same organization to see which one was the most effective? 
We don't even do basic things like that. I think a lot. Well, some of our customers do, and our designers do. So um, that would be good. Maybe it's not. <laughs> maybe it's not <laughs> as automated as we would like. But so if I if I go to another another area, one of the predictions that I have written is, and maybe this is more of a hope. But you also care about data for good. Absolutely. And diversity beyond just the diversity we see, but also inclusion and equity. So I don't know if it's a prediction or a hope that 2021, we will use data to reveal where we stand, but also to drive change, to correct things, to actually make progress do you think we'll get there? Do you agree, disagree? Is 2021 too soon? I, well, it's it's not too soon. It's too late. <laughs> it should have been done many years ago. Um, but, but given the trajectory we're on, I think we might see some significant changes in 21, particularly because we're becoming very aware, um, I think, as an industry. Uh, and, and we've seen this very recently. It's a situation at Google, for example. Yes. Um, you know, where diversity has become, you know, not just an aspiration, but a critical component for many, many people in that organization about how they view the success of the company they work for. And almost like an open rebellion at, at Google about the lack of diversity, or at least the, the lack of genuine movement in diversity. So, and, and we've seen similar situations at Facebook as well. And we saw a similar situation at Microsoft um, a, a couple of years back. So I think we are seeing um, people in the industry starting to recognize that, you know, diversity and inclusion and equity are not just something to aim for, but actually an important part of how we achieve what we're aiming for. You can't, right. you can't achieve it without living it. Yeah, and right. I, I see far too many companies with grand goals around diversity inclusion, but they're not actually diverse and inclusive themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's progress is slow, and it takes a lot of grit and grind. It's not there's no quick fix. It's multiple right, things. No. Um, good. Any other prediction you want to add, Donald, in the data and analytics space for or a wish? What advice would you give data and analytic leaders the art of the possible that you most want them to work on? The one thing I really wish to see is um, a better understanding and a better comfort with ambiguity. As we um, increasingly use artificial intelligence and machine learning, which are by their nature predictive and therefore ambiguous, have they have potential error in them, they have vagueness in there. I would like to see people becoming much more comfortable with being able to navigate ambiguous situations rather than trying to reduce the ambiguity and clarify things, which leads to a sort of um, false sense of certainty. I would much rather see people embrace ambiguity. There's an example I give sometimes in my presentations of a dashboard from one of my customers, you know, which predicts their quarter sales right down to, you know, like it'll be seven million dollars, three hundred eighty-seven thousand and twenty-five cents. You know, it's the most ridiculous <laughs> dashboard I ever saw because you know there's nothing, no decision that could be made if they didn't just say seven million. But at the same time, you know, so I, but they're uncomfortable with the ambiguity. They believe if the follow up through these calculations. It gives them this false sense of security that somehow they're getting it right. And um, I'd like to see people become more comfortable with ambiguity. 
Uh, so is that is that about understanding really what a predictive model does and the degree of accuracy and the things that you can't control? Is it, does Absolutely, it get back yeah. to that poor data fluency, really? It comes back to that on the technical side. Absolutely. And, um, and, and that's very important. But it also comes back to the human side that we have to be comfortable with that ambiguity. We have to technically understand it and be comfortable with it. Okay, great. Thank you, Donald. Let's move to our lightning rounds. So quick predictions. How much snow in Vancouver this year? Oh, um, there'll be a six-inch dramatic fall at the end of January, beginning of February. There you go. Best book you read in 2020? Um, Oh, gosh. There's a wonderful book called The Diary of a Young Naturalist, which was written by a young autistic Irish guy. And and it's really wonderful. It's a really wonderful book. Dara has just written this amazing description of how his study of the natural world helped him to adapt to his autism and handle his autism and face the world. And it's it's quite beautifully written and quite amazing. He was only 15, 14 or 15 when he wrote it. Interesting. Dara McNulty. Yeah. First book you'll read in 2021. Uh, I don't know. I haven't bought it yet. <laughs> Actually, Nothing I can tell on your you, wish list? <laughs> I can turn around because I actually have uh, a tickler list of books on my bookshelf. So what's and on your tickler list? It's called The Age of Waiting by Douglas Panic. Very appropriate. I should read that in 2020, shouldn't I? The Age Good. of Waiting. Interesting. I'm, I'm taking notes here. And most likely merger and acquisition. Uh, Snowflake will buy an analytics company. On that note, Donald Farmer, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Joining Cindy next is Wayne Eckerson, the founder and principal consultant at Eckerson Group. Eckerson Group is a network of hands-on experts who consult, write, and speak about business intelligence, analytics, performance management, and big data. Their goal is to help organizations turn data into insights and action. Wayne has an extensive background in the industry, from directing the Data Warehousing Institute to authoring two books about harnessing data analytics to better lead your business to mentoring our very own host of The Data Chief. With that, I'll hand the mic back to Cindy. Next up, we have Wayne Eckerson, my original mentor, I would say, in the space. We go way back. So Wayne, do you even remember what is the first thing that you and I worked on in the data and analytics space? Well, I think I recruited you to teach a course with me at TDWI on BI tools, right? Yes, we go back before that. Ooh. I know I'm testing you. Now you've got me. So there were two things. One, uh, I interviewed you when I was a grad student on um, how the internet was changing BI tools. But the first writing thing you recruited me for was Hyperion S-Base, the 2000 release. So this was Y2K, and it was a TDWI Flashpoint article. Wow. Yes. How things have changed (laughs) in 20 years. My Lord. I know for sure. (laughs) Now it's not the internet. It's, it's cloud. So, but you and I, uh, we taught together for a while. We worked together at TDWI. You now have your own consulting and advisory practice. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Eckerson Group is a research and consulting company specializing in data and analytics. The research company does reports and webcasts and white papers on techniques, trends, and technologies that are emerging in the data analytics field. And the consulting arm, which is becoming more and more separate with a different group of people, helped Fortune 2000 companies globally 
build data strategies, modern data architectures, data governance programs, self-service analytics strategies, uh, master data management solutions, uh, and things like that. So it's a, it's a nice synergy between the two groups. Most companies don't do it because it's a lot of work. It's uh, two separate companies, really, but we think the research informs the consulting and vice versa. So that's why we keep doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I do highly recommend a number of Wayne's white papers um, in the last two years, I just think are are really great, whether it was data literacy or even what is data ops and why people need to be thinking about that. And of course, what is a search and AI-driven analytics? So Wayne, let's go to some of your predictions for 2021 Give me one of your favorite or boldest predictions. Most favorite or boldest predictions. Well, <laughs> I don't know if this is a prediction as much as a wish, but I think COVID, and maybe it's overdone, has given us all a huge reset button to reset how we structure the work-life balance. I know a lot of people are finding there is a silver lining, despite all the tragedy out there, that they've reclaimed some of their personal lives back and able to reprioritize what's important to them personally and to their families. So for me, perhaps uh, becoming more consistent in, in exercising, meditating, things like that, spending more time with my family instead of commuting or for me, traveling, since we're a virtual organization, everyone has always worked at home here at Eckerson Group. And I kind of welcome all the uh, companies that, that are now finding the joy of virtual uh, workplaces. And I think hopefully, that they'll see that people can be more productive, teams can be just as effective. It just takes a little bit of getting used to by managers and, and management. And I, you know, I, I've had to go through this. When you can't see people, what they're doing, and you don't hear from them immediately, you get a little paranoid that they're not doing what they should do. And, and so unfortunately, I have seen and some clients and, and prospects on the consulting side, companies implementing this uh, click tracking software to track what people are doing uh, via webcam and uh, keystrokes on their computers. And I think that's yeah. an awful, an awful thing. I can see why they do it because you do get paranoid when you can't physically see people, but it's not a good path to go down, yeah. to be honest. It's just going to yeah. subvert what I think is a huge opportunity to give your workforce, especially if it's a more of a white collar workforce, I suppose, uh, you know, the autonomy they need to do what they need to do when they need to do it. Yeah. So that's, it's interesting that, so capturing and the click strokes and the webcams, that would be a new data source, but that's almost big brother gone bad. I wonder though, it's interesting that you are seeing more of a work-life balance being established and that taking travel out of the equation may definitely help. But I wonder if you're seeing that as well, because you're used to working virtually and from home to a large extent. I'm seeing a lot of data professionals, though, that are struggling with this. There is no clear demarcation to the end of their workday, and they're working themselves to death. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what happens when you first start working at home. Now, now you and I have been doing that for a long time. I, I've been doing it since the 1990s. 
And you do, you work more. So that's a good thing for employers, right? There's no need for click tracking software because hopefully they'll realize that, you know, most of their employees are working actually more and they're getting more productivity from them. They're not wasting as much time around the uh, proverbial water cooler socializing at work. They're actually just sitting down and doing it. Uh, but yes, you, everyone does need to come to some accommodation with the computer in the house. And after a while, I think most people figure that out. Yeah, good. Well, so I hope people do get that work-life balance, learn to work smarter, say no to the non-value work. That would be good for everyone. What is your other bold prediction? Well, on the technology side, I guess we should talk about that a little bit. There are two reports I wrote this year addressing some really interesting technology that we've seen. There's been a gap in the market for many, many years, and finally we're seeing vendors step up and start to fill it. One, well, there's three maybe if you, if you include data ops, which you already mentioned. Uh, so the other two are data exchanges and business monitoring tools, and then we'll throw data ops in there for three. Those are three huge developments in our field that we see emerging right now. Yeah. So data exchanges are one of, and it's not even data exchanges, I would say data sharing full stop, whether it's external data, new data sources like human mobility, but then also data sharing between customers, suppliers, and what have you. But interestingly, you wrote also already last year, you were predicting that in 2020 data exchanges would be the next big thing. And I think we made some progress. Why do you think 2021, I think it will be the breakout year, but why do you think the time is now? Yeah, well, the time is now is because it's been such a big pain point for so many companies. Now, you know, that doing your annual prediction, that's kind of an arbitrary uh, time slot for predicting things. You know, these trends take, you know, years to really break into uh, mainstream visibility and then become adopted by the mainstream. You know, any technology worth its salt takes 10 to 20 years for that really to happen from beginning to end. So I think in many ways, we're kind of uh, halfway through that process with data exchanges. They just, like an iceberg now, the tip has been, has broken the surface. Uh, there's a lot of development that's been going on underneath. And, and these exchanges now support the full breadth of what companies need. Uh, in our report, we talked about peer-to-peer -peer exchanges between two companies that want to exchange information, or even two divisions inside a company, which makes you wonder whether data exchanges will be the next data warehouse, right? Because right. some companies, every department is like its own little information fiefdom, and they have huge security concerns about sharing information. The data exchange makes it much easier to provision data across departmental boundaries or company boundaries. Yeah. The other example is uh, private data exchanges or private data marketplaces where companies might exchange information with, say, a set of suppliers. <laughs> like Walmart might replace its extranet, supplier extranet with a, a data exchange platform or an insurance consortium might have a, a private exchange just for its members. And then the third example of exchange that we wrote about is a data marketplace, which is a public open 
exchange or marketplace where any buyer and seller can come together to share information. And ideally, these marketplaces or exchanges uh, allow you to select just what you want, even filtering data, you know, specifying what kind of filters you want applied to the data, and then pricing that out and purchasing it on the platform. Not many do that today, uh, but we see that coming. And usually the, the marketplace or exchange is the place where people can say, oh, here's what we have available. Is that of interest? Yes, that's of interest. I need it, you know, packaged this way. Okay, that's great. Now, now call each other on the phone and, and agree on a price. You know? Yeah. But Amazon does actually have a commerce-based data exchange. That's one of the few right now, but we expect others to, to join them in the not-too-distant future. Yeah. Well, Amazon, I would also say um, Snowflake. And then, you know, one of the database vendors started and stopped a few years ago since resurfaced. And so if you look at the different approaches, there's the database vendors, but then there's also some specialty, smaller companies, whether it's Harbor and Dawix. What do you think is going to get traction or do you think they'll all coexist? Well, that's a good point. You'd have to give the nod to the cloud platform vendors because they already have all the eyeballs or a lot of them. So, you know, put your bets on Amazon for sure. I think Microsoft's coming back with theirs. Google will soon have one. Snowflake is an interesting play because it cuts across all of those platforms uh, and also has this multi-tenant-based sharing capability, which is really cool that any true cloud-native multi-tenant environment, like a Snowflake, a Domo, or a InfoBurst, you know, they have this ability to kind of share data without moving data. <laughs> that really is futuristic, uh, but it's here. Yeah, we think it's great. But I also think that I think a company like DAOX that is independent of all the cloud platform players and is purpose-built for data sharing and data exchanges will also succeed as well. And what we're also seeing is a lot of vendors providing the platforms for data exchange. Like DAOX not only has its own data marketplace, it primarily sells a platform for other companies to create their own exchanges. So we'll see exchanges popping up everywhere for every industry and sub-industry, consortium, any any existing environment where multiple companies, you know, on, on a B2B basis come together uh, to do business, you'll see a data exchange underlying all that. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. So so we've covered um, work-life balance. We've covered some technical things on sharing data. I want to come back to a prediction or maybe a question to you related to some of the softer side of things, the, the people change management. And as you work with your customers, we know from research from Harvard Business Review that People say that lack of people change management is one of the top barriers to being data-driven. And I'm wondering if you're seeing the same in your, you have a, an interesting uh, data maturity assessment. Is that a bigger problem? Will we fix it in 2021? Why or why not? Yeah, it's a huge issue. And I've always focused on the softer side of uh, data analytics without excluding the, the hard side, the technology and architecture and data side. But the soft side, 
you know, any data leader who has succeeded in the past that we, you and I have profiled and others, they've always mastered the soft side of data and analytics. And when you take that, the heart of it is change management. And I have this little saying that I derived from reading a couple of books on related issues. Uh, to, to change, you need to appeal to the head, the heart, and the herd. <laughs> the head, you have to tell people what's changing, why they need to change, and what's expected of them. You know, the heart is you need to give people some incentive to change, whether that's monetary or financial, or better yet, some cause that's greater than themselves that they, they can uh, throw themselves into, you know, something they can be passionate about uh, participating in. But the most powerful change agent is the herd. Uh, and that means we are actually herding animals uh, from an evolutionary perspective. And we do to a, a, a huge extent, more than we acknowledge. We do what other people around us do. So if we can get the herd pointing in, a, in, a, in the direction we want, then everyone else will follow. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot that goes into devising tactics and strategies to appeal to the head, the heart, and the herd. But that, in many ways, is the essence of, of managing change. And a lot of it has to do with getting people out of their fixed roles that we tend to put people in. I'm working with a practitioner right now to write a report on data analysts and how to motivate them, recruit them, retain them, uh, and, uh, you know, get the most out of them. And a lot of it is teaching them how to interact with business people and vice versa. Yeah, totally. They want those skills. They want those skills. But I love this, Wayne, the head, the heart, and the herd. I, I often talk about with them what's in it for me. But the herd, I hadn't thought of that. And that, in a way, it, that's that's probably the hardest because too often we have groupthink that is largely complacent. That's tough. But I love that. Yeah, there is a great uh, research. When I wrote my last book, I included this in the in the book. It, it came from one of the people I profiled, uh, Amy O'Connor, uh, who's at Cloudera. And she found research about how you get kids to eat their peas. <laughs> oh. And there's three common ways <laughs> to do <That's>... that. <laughs> okay. One is to uh, convince them or persuade them. One is to coerce them. And, and one is to bribe them. The best way researchers found to get kids to eat their peas is sit them at a table with kids who do like to eat their peas, and very quickly they'll start eating peas. It just shows you in, in a very simple way the, the power of, of the herd, and there's ways that we can amplify communications and messaging to amplify the behavior we want to uh, reinforce and minimize that that we don't. That's great. Everyone, it's been so great talking predictions. Now we're going to go to lightning round. Wayne, who's going to win the Super Bowl? <laughs> well, not the Patriots. How much snow will Boston get uh, this spring? How many feet for the biggest snowstorm? I think we probably saw it already. A foot. <laughs> That's, That's all? Done. That's nothing. That's nothing. All right. Wayne, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Cindy. Yes, it's delightful to be with you as well. And talk about tech. Finally, joining us to close out today's episode is Tom Davenport. Tom is a visiting professor at Said Business School at the University of Oxford, a distinguished professor at Babson College, a research fellow at the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, and a senior advisor at Deloitte Analytics and AI Practice. 
He's also authored or co-authored 17 books. Needless to say, Tom is a leader in the industry. And today he closes out our predictions episode with a conversation about what future job roles in data and analytics will look like. So this special episode of The Data Chief, we have for sure one of the leading voices in AI and analytics going back a long, long time, Tom Davenport. Tom, welcome. Thanks, Cindy. Happy to be here with you. Well, so Tom, I thought we kind of used to be friends, but you're in beautiful Florida while I'm in freezing cold (laughs) New Jersey. (laughs) Well, I did, before we started, welcome you down here. So uh, calm down. (laughs) The joy of virtual teaching, right? Yeah, exactly. So Tom, give me your favorite or most provocative prediction for 2021. I think that more CDOs will realize that it's pretty much untenable to focus on things like data architecture and governance and too hard to show progress. So they will shift much more toward being chief data and analytics officers, which is much easier to show value. That's one of my predictions. And it's already been happening. So I'm pretty sure it will come true. That's interesting because I saw earlier in the year, you and Randy Bean co-wrote a note about, are you asking too much of your CDOs? But if it's untenable for them to be looking after data architecture, who should be looking after it? Well, I I don't really mean that that no one should be looking after it, but it's really difficult to show progress. And certainly no one ever sees perfection in that regard. And so I think you should have a kind of a fallback activity like analytics. I suppose it's fine to combine the roles of chief data and analytics officer. And I do think that organizations should try to make progress on data. And I have some opinions about how best to do that. But to be to have that be your only job, I think, is a really tough assignment and better off combining it with doing something with data, which is kind of what I call analytics. Yeah. Well, I often say, what's the point of capturing the data if you're not leveraging it for business value? That is kind of a dead-end job. I guess the debate continues, should that be the role of whether you name it the chief analytics officer or really even the business person? But if you have no business value, what's the point? So over time, the role has changed. So you're advocating for it to move more towards the analytics side of things. Do you subscribe to this belief that the role eventually will go away. So if you look at some of the digital natives like Facebook, they don't even have a CDO or a CAO. It just is part of everyone's job. Yeah, it's pervasive in those places. So I think it's possible that it will go away. I It's a semi-controversial position, but I think that it's a little crazy to sort of proliferate all these chief roles in technology, chief information officer, the oldest one, chief technology officer, chief digital officer, chief data officer, chief analytics officer, chief information security officer, et cetera, without some kind of reporting hierarchy among them. So I think it's not unlikely that they will all kind of 
collapse back under a chief information officer role at some point. That's okay. We can handle controversy. <laughs> controversy is a good thing. When we debate, we get to a better place. So I'm going to have to throw one of my predictions at you and you let me know what you think. You actually wrote one of the most um, provocative articles saying that data science will be the sexiest job of the 21st century a while ago. And one of my predictions is that data science will lose its luster and maybe already has. What do you think? Well, just a little bit of background on that article. It was not my idea to call it the sexiest job of the 21st <laughs> century. That was my editors. And I actually felt as I was interviewing data scientists for this article, this is back in 2013, I think, that things that people were doing sounded more like data plumbing than data science. <laughs> and and so I didn't really think it was that sexy in many ways. It was sexy in terms of its appeal in the marketplace, I suppose, but not in terms of the day-to-day -day activities involved. And I think that's still the case. People still spend way too much of their time, you know, trying to get data in shape. And I think data scientists has kind of lost all recognition. It combines so many different roles that it it really lacks meaning now. And I think it's important to classify and certify different aspects of the job with probably different titles if you're going to be successful with data science. Yeah, so that's interesting. So first off, the editor, it was a great title. Let's it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate goal is to get people to read and think. So exactly. so I think that editor did a, a great job, but you do hit on one of the reasons why I think it's lost its luster is is a lot of work is spent on the plumbing, which is necessary, but not so sexy. But I also feel, and you're a professor still in this space, is that I feel like the universities have almost made money on this and students saying, wow, I could come out of school immediately start earning $70,000, $80,000 with this degree. And they've taught them to code, but not so much the, the business application. So the sexy side of data science, I would say, is when you get to that value, those aha moments. But have we done a good job at balancing the diversity of skills that you need there? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, there's some exceptions, certainly. But yeah, when I was first interviewing data scientists for that article we were discussing, I would say, so what's the single most important attribute? And many of them would say being able to code, and I didn't necessarily agree. But even more recently, there's a new journal called the Harvard Data Science Journal, and the editor of it is somebody I really respect a lot. He's a statistician at Harvard, but I wrote a piece about the importance of deployment and how we're not deploying models often enough and we need to teach more deployment skills. And I interviewed some people in some of these university analytics programs at MIT and North Carolina State. Both of them did try to inculcate deployment-oriented skills some of the things I think you were talking about, um, understanding the business problem and getting the trust of business decision makers and 
you know, knowing what it takes to put something into production, which involves process change and skill change and so on. And a um, couple of uh, anonymous reviewers for this article said, eh, no, that's not really the responsibility of a data scientist. That should be somebody else's job. Data scientists are, exist to create good models, and that's all they need to do, which I thought was really nutty. So create the model. Create yeah. the model, but don't worry about where it's deployed. Don't worry even if it's deployed. You know, <laughs> what is the function of a model that never gets deployed? And there are lots of them out there these days. So I don't understand how anybody could hold that position, but there are people who do. Yeah, yeah. So I think we have to fix that. That's like worse than shelfware. So it's like shelfware that doesn't even go on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So do you think, will the no-code platforms or or low code help and i'm thinking some of the the products out there whether it's data robot data iq lower code than somebody just writing pure python will, will that help or is it really about changing the thinking of who owns this well i think it'll require both i do think those tools can help if organizations implement them in the right way i i did a little study for data robot a couple of years ago and i talked to a number of their customers about kind of what benefits were they getting out of automated machine learning i talked to a guy at rbc formerly known i guess as the royal bank of canada and he he was a pretty senior manager in the risk area for the bank. And he said, you know, I can choose between a data scientist who understands lots about data and algorithms, but knows nothing about my customers and nothing about the business problem. And really, in many cases, doesn't have an interest in them. Or I can get somebody who understands my customers and who is, you know, quantitatively literate, but, um, you know, is not going to develop great new algorithms. And using these tools, they can develop models that are just as good. He said, frankly, I'll take the latter in most cases. And I think that's a smart decision for organizations to make, although not very many of them have yet. Yeah, yeah. I hesitate because my bias comes from if we're not solving a business problem or seeing this through the customer lens, what's the point? So if you had a wish, if, if you could give your analytics leaders advice for 2021, thinking of the art of the possible, what do you most want them to think about or do differently this year? Uh, I would like them to focus a little bit more on some of the cultural and behavioral aspects of the job. You know, I'm a sociologist by academic background, and that is the part of this that has always interested me. And I've participated in surveys showing that we're not making the progress that we should in terms of you know becoming data-driven in organizations. There's still an awful lot of companies that make decisions on the basis of intuition and experience and, and no data at all. And um, I, I think if chief data and analytics officers aren't going to fight that battle, then who is? So it's hard, you know, it's kind of like making progress on data architecture and governance, but I do think it's really important. Yeah. Well, I did not know that you were a sociologist. I feel like I should have known that. That was my minor. Oh, really? Yeah. Why wasn't it your major, Cindy? English major. Uh, I don't, okay, I don't know, because I thought, who can make money being a sociologist? Understanding <laughs> why. You thought you were going to make money being an English major. <laughs> no, I didn't think that either. That's why I went back to school. Trust me. 
<laughs> but it's interesting that you say that. Uh, Gartner actually had a prediction that over 95% of business leaders will continue to make decisions using intuition instead of probability distributions and will underestimate the risks as a result. I think that's a high number. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, in the surveys that I've seen, I don't know, now 30 or 40% say that they think their organizations are data-driven in terms of decision-making and so on, to a substantial degree anyway. So I don't think it's quite as bad as that, but I I think there's still a lot of work to do. And, you know, we've made a lot of progress on the technology, but we haven't made nearly as much progress on the on the human side. All right, Tom, we're going to go to a lightning round. Give me your okay. predictions. Are you ready? Yes. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Uh not the New England Patriots, which is all I really care about. <laughs> That's okay. As long as it's the Packers, I'm good. Um, <laughs> how, how many uh, snowstorms in Boston more than a foot? Uh, two this year, which would, I think, be relatively high lately. It's been easing up for the last few years, but it seems to be coming back. Best book you read in 2020? I really liked 21 Hidden Valley Road, which was about this family in Colorado that, um, I don't know, six of their 12 kids come down with schizophrenia. And it's a combination of the story about that family and the attempts to, you know, treat and cure that horrible disease. It was just really well done. Hmm, I hadn't heard that. What's the first book you'll read in 2021? I downloaded Ready Player Two to my iPad, and I really liked Ready Player One, so I'm looking forward to it. Ooh, good. I gave my husband Ready Player One for Christmas, so that's good. Oh, it's a fantastic book. Tom, such a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Same here. Thanks for having me, Cindy. It was fun. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or listen to more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout on Twitter at BIScorecard. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.